Welcome to the FedTech Innovator Podcast, bringing you the stories and journeys behind deep tech innovation and entrepreneurship. In each interview, we go behind the scenes with the entrepreneurs, scientists, and visionaries who are engineering the technologies of tomorrow, today. These journeys are unpredictable and full of learning, and whether you're an entrepreneur, researcher, or funder of innovation, our goal is to create a community where we can learn from each other as we all seek to change the world with technology. I'm Ben Solomon, and I'm the founder and managing partner of FedTech. Since 2015, we've been building a bridge between the R&D world and the venture world. Every year, we get to work with hundreds of companies and researchers who are changing the world through technology. In this podcast, we're going to share those stories with you from our friends and colleagues in deep tech. I'm coming to you from our headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, just across from the river from the nation's capital. So we are really pleased to be joined by Rachel Rath today from Johnson & Johnson, J-Labs, and Blue Knight. Um, Rachel, good to see you. Thanks for being on the podcast. Um, really excited. I know uh, we've done some work together in terms of hosting different sessions and, and just been really um, awfully neat to see all the progress that you've made in, in your work. I guess uh, starting just with an intro and then uh, walk us through a little bit of the, what is J-Labs, what is Blue Knight, why, why is J&J um, investing in, in, in both? Why is, it, why is this critical to the work you do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank, well, first of all, thanks, Ben, for having me. It's been a pleasure to get to know FedTech a bit over the last couple of years um, through, through programs and um, some partnership opportunities that we've done. So really happy to join you today and um, have, a, have a fun conversation. Um, so let's see, Johnson & Johnson Innovation J-Labs. Um, J-Labs is part of Johnson & Johnson Innovation. And the, the idea behind Johnson & Johnson Innovation is that the best ideas come from everywhere, not just within the walls of Johnson & Johnson. So through Johnson & Johnson Innovation, we really aim to be out in ecosystems to support early stage companies, innovators, entrepreneurs, working on the sol potential solutions of tomorrow. And so J-Labs is our global incubator network that is part of Johnson & Johnson Innovation. We have locations around the world from uh, Shanghai to acro locations across North Amer America on uh, the West Coast, the East Coast, in Houston, Texas, uh, up in Toronto, and then a location in Bursa, Belgium as well, as well as supporting companies virtually wherever they are in the world. The J-Labs Incubator Network is a no-strings-attached model. We don't take IP. We don't take equity when companies come in. But we're looking to bring in and support early-stage companies that strategically align to the business units of Johnson & Johnson. So um, traditionally, J&J has been a three-sector company, pharmaceuticals, medtech, consumer. Consumer is spinning out into the, the new Kendi company. Um, and so we're, we support companies early stage companies across any of those areas that align strategically up to Johnson & Johnson. Um, our locations provide really modular innovative space, so bio labs, chem labs, prototyping space, cell culture space, um, to support companies as they grow. So companies come in with a single lab bench sometimes, and then they graduate several years later when they're bursting at the seams of you know private labs for, for 10 people. So we love to see our companies grow to the point of graduating out of our spaces and developing their own footprints. So Blue Knight, to answer maybe the second part of that question, is a public-private partnership between J-Labs and BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And Blue Knight leverages the J-Labs model to support companies that are 
strategically aligned both to Johnson and Johnson and to Barda's areas of interest and provide these companies with additional resources to keep accelerating their science and solutions even faster. When, and, and even tell us a little bit, so I know we've been lucky enough, we, we work with Barda through a different program um, and the whole, like the value of Barda and the whole imperative of Barda obviously has become, you know, much more after, you know, kind of post pandemic. Um, yeah. We, we kind of see it more in, as a, as a society, I think, but like, tell us like what, what led J and J to partner with Barda and then where, where is it going in terms of like, what do you, what do you hope in the next, you know, five, 10 years you're going to be able to achieve together? Yeah. So actually it's, it's interesting from a timing perspective. And whenever I'm sort of telling the story of blue Knight, I ask people to sort of go back in time with me to April of 2019 pre COVID. Oh, um, yeah. well, and don't, don't, don't it's actually, yeah. Yeah, it was. So it was actually in April of 2019 when Johnson and Johnson announced that we would be opening the next J Labs location in Washington D.C., which is our newest J Labs location, that we would have this partnership with Barda. So this actually came before the COVID-19 surge, and I actually joined Johnson and Johnson in December of 2019, thinking I would have this sort of great space for for some runway and some strategic planning. And it was just a couple months later that we found ourselves launching this public-private partnership to support companies looking at emerging pathogens, looking at pandemic preparedness in the midst of COVID-19. And so we definitely, you know, thought about how to how to pivot whenever, you know, a moment like that comes along, you have to think about the the way you can pivot to even increase, increase the support opportunities. And so um, I think when I think about what we're going to look forward to seeing in the future, I actually get really inspired by how we've already pivoted and new new things that we've done to date. So when we originally announced that we would be launching Blue Knight, we originally announced it as a partnership focused at J-Labs at Washington, D.C. And when we actually publicly launched Blue Knight in August of 2020, we piloted that with companies actually from around the world. So we originally announced seven companies coming in as the initial companies within Blue Knight and piloting at some sites outside of J-Labs at Washington, D.C. We actually continued to expand from there. And today, Blue Knight supports companies wherever they are in the world, physically through J-Labs locations across North America or virtually connecting them to where they are in the world. We where we have this amazing network of J-Labs locations, but we don't have a J-Labs everywhere in the world. And so our J-Labs locations need to be these hubs to then connect into those broader ecosystems as well. So we have companies from Australia, Bogota, Colombia, across North America, and across Europe as well, all within the Blue Knight portfolio. Um, one of the other new really exciting things that we actually just did within the last year was look at new ways to support the companies that are currently in the portfolio. So we're always onboarding and reviewing applications for new Blue Knight companies on a rolling basis. But we're also always looking at new ways to support the current portfolio. And so at the end of last year, we we launched a resident-only quickfire challenge, actually, to bring some um, non-dilutive funding to uh, awardees for um, just the current Blue Knight portfolio companies to help them get to their next inflection points. And so we awarded five of the Blue Knight companies, each with some some small non-dilutive capital to help them get to those next inflection points. And we're, that's what we're trying to do. We're really looking to help these companies progress their science and companies 
not just focusing on the technologies, but how do you really build companies to get potential solutions to patients at the end of the day? Yeah, actually, and that's a really good kind of thread, I think, uh, Rachel. So like when I, the idea of inflection points for companies is something that we we think a lot about at FedTech and and even like to, to what extent you can systematize and kind of understand what's the path, you know, and what are those inflection points that you have to hit and when do you have to hit them? How do you hit them? Um, and I'm curious, just so we see the companies that we largely will see, you know, are, are coming out of research labs, you know, a lot of times um, winning SBIRs, you know, early on as kind of the roadmap. And then, and then that would allow for private funding to come in eventually. But when you kind of look at the successful companies that have participated in Blue Knight, like what, what's their playbook? Like, how do they, how have they gone to market? What are the, if you could even point out like two or three of the just critical moments that you've seen the companies um, either, you know, be successful or, or even not, what, what would those look like? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're, many of our companies, all, all of our step companies are still, uh, pre-commercial. So we're still very early. And, and these companies that we're bringing in are actually from a sort of pipeline perspective. One of the sweet spots for Blue Knight is companies that are generally too early for other Varna funding. So we're often honestly been looking at companies around the same point that maybe you are through FedTech. They've often maybe received some non-diluted funding from the SBIR program or STTR program. Um, they've spun out of, of uh, their research labs already, particularly academic labs. So one of the things that is a re baseline requirement for becoming a J-Labs company is being a, a incorporated company. So we don't look at the number of employees. We don't look at the duration, but you do have to be a company versus still within an academic institution or a research lab. So I think a couple of inflection points are that spin out process, actually incorporating the company, which is maybe very sort of fundamental and early on, but has to happen. And then coming with that is actually looking at the IP, right? Making sure there is a pathway to commercialization for the technology. Um, so really protecting that IP that the company is generating. Uh, many of our companies across J Labs are receiving SBAR funding, STTR funding. I think everyone's excited about the next wave, right? It's, it's that time of year again right now. <laughs> um, and and I would say state level funding as well. It's, particularly when we think about Blue Knight companies, you look at like the New York State Biodefense Fund, for example, um, several of our Blue Knight companies have been supported through that program or other state funding or even local funding. We look down at the Washington, D.C. area and there's some great um, local funding coming out of this region as well. So I think those are important milestones. And then, you know, really getting to the point of raising those first dilutive rounds, you know, the seed round, thinking about moving into a Series A. And many of our companies come into the Blue Knight program, I would say a route, and there's no sort of set bar where you have to be, but many of the companies come into Blue Knight around seed stage, either getting ready to raise their seed or raising it. Um, and then they stay in J-Labs while raising their Series A generally, and then maybe they're ready to graduate coming out of that, particularly into their own spaces. When I th I, what I think is so exceptional about this program is, is that you are looking early and that you're willing to um, work with early stage companies. Uh, you know, a lot of times, like when we see large corporates, they often have, you know, great innovation programs, but even, and they, and they'll, they'll sort of, when they say early, what early actually means is different than, you know, a lot of the, the companies that I think, um, you know, we see and that, that, you know, um, I'm sure you guys see also, but 
I guess, so what, what is for Johnson and Johnson, right? Huge, amazing co company. What, what's the long-term play in terms of making these investments and helping companies that, you know, you're, you're going to have, um, kind of hit or miss, you know, results, right. If you just look at the sort of the, the distribution of, of likely outcomes, but that that's, you know, okay. The ones that work well, will be, will be awesome. I'm sure. But what's, what's like the thinking, um, behind this, you know, all from, from Jane Jay's perspective. Yeah, well, I think you have to think about sort of J Labs as a whole, and then also Johnson and Johnson Innovation, because J Labs is one of the tools within the Johnson and Johnson Innovation sort of toolbox that we like to think about. And so we work closely with our innovation centers around the world that do early partnering um, in the preclinical space. A lot of research collaborations, MTAs. Um, we also have JJDC, which is our strategic venture fund, which does the venture investing into early stage companies. Um, and JBD, which is our, um, uh, does sort of the licensing and later stage deals, mergers and acquisitions. So we have all of these different tools within the JLabs toolbox or within the Johnson & Johnson Innovation toolbox. And so it's thinking about how to deploy them to support the innovations that are on strategy for J&J. &J. And one of the things that we look at is as we're bringing in companies into JLabs, is there short-term deal potential? Is there long-term deal potential? And how may we want to go on to work with these companies? So JLabs has been around for 10 years. Over that time, we've incubated about 920 companies globally across JLabs. And we've done at least one deal with about 25% of those companies in the portfolio. That may be an MTA, maybe a research collaboration, it may be an equity investment or a licensing deal, but we're finding different ways to work with these companies. And many times coming into J Labs when you're really early is a great way to start building that relationship with Johnson & Johnson. One of the things about J Labs is that um, all of the companies that come in with strong strategic alignment, they get a JPAL who's a mentor from within Johnson & Johnson, who's helping build that relationship with them looking at their progress over time and can help be a champion for them within the organization. And then on the Blue Knight side, the Blue Knight companies are getting mentorship from Johnson & Johnson, but they're actually also getting mentorship from BARDA in the U.S. government. And for many companies, yes, that scientific input is incredibly valuable in that mentorship. But let's be honest, like navigating the U.S. government can be really hard. <laughs> And so sometimes even just mentorship about the different entities within the U.S. government and how do you navigate and how do you approach can be really valuable. You need a J-PAL. Yeah, I love that. That's great. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, when I guess even just focusing in a little bit, like I, I'm really proud that like this initiative is going on in, in D.C. Like obviously like we at FedTech, you know, we're, we have most of our staff based in, in Arlington area. So yeah. we're very passionate about sort of the D.C., venture scene in general. I mean, how, how do you view even, I, I, and it looked like for your background that you, you spent a lot of time here, you went to college here, you went to grad school here. How do you feel about just DC as a, you know, as a place for startups and innovation? Yeah, I've been in DC now for almost 20 years and sort of, uh, for better or worse, maybe got, got stuck down here in the DC ecosystem. <laughs> um, it, it's, you know, it's really exciting to see this type of more biotech life science innovation taking place here in the capital region. Um, I, I think J Labs likes to go into ecosystems and be an early driver. You see that where we've gone into Houston or where we've gone into Toronto, we like to help 
be part of the impetus to help that ecosystem emerge. I think we're in the early stages here in the DC area. I think back to, you know, when I was in college down here in DC, there were life science incubators, at not at least not any that I knew about. <laughs> that wasn't part of what we were exposed to. And so I think we're at this sort of pivotal point in DC where J Labs at Washington DC is part of the Children's National Research and Innovation Campus on the old Walter Reed campus, just sort of south of Silver Spring, Maryland. And it's really watching this whole ecosystem emerge and transform and bringing in investment dollars and VCs here to the capital region, which you know, I think the Virginia, Maryland, DC all do play really nicely together in helping support early stage companies here. And you see work going on up in Boston and work down in Virginia and out near Manassas. But it's about how this ecosystem can really work together to help support these early stage companies set up really here in this ecosystem where they can be at this, you know, connected to so many nonprofits, foundations, government entities, groups like FedTech, right, who are all set up here in the capital region. Yeah, I, I was amazed when I read um, just looking at city, city and regional GDPs, um, DC is actually, the DC kind of metro area is about uh, fourth. Um, so you have New York City, uh, LA, San Francisco, and then, and then, and then us, yeah, as the, you know, biggest GDPs, uh, by region in the country. Yeah. Rachel. So tell us a little bit about kind of your career path. What brought you down to DC? Um, I know you grew up in, in New Hampshire. Um, what was that like? And, and yeah. And what did you, uh, what's the career arc been, uh, to date? Yeah. So I, as you mentioned, Ben, I grew up in rural New Hampshire and was able to, in high school and actually earlier than that, but really get engaged in uh, political elections. And you know, New Hampshire is the first presidential primary or historically has been. And so was able to really get firsthand experience working in campaigns. And so you know, when it came time to go to college, wanted to come down here to the Washington, D.C. area was fortunate to have some some internship experiences early in college, but felt that just working inside the government wasn't going to be the right sort of fit for me, at least at that point in time. And um, ended up studying international relations and pre-med in college, thinking I would go to medical school. Um, and I think one of the things that really defined my career path today was being really open to new opportunities. I, I think back to when I was growing up or when I was in high school and I always loved science. I grew up in a family of doctors and I, from my perspective, from growing up, if you, if you liked science, you became a doctor. I wasn't aware of sort of all of the other possibilities out there. And so being really open-minded and taking different internship opportunities or even job opportunities to, or, or shadowing in hospitals to get some of that exposure to understand, okay, if I don't want to work in politics, where do I want to go from there? And if I don't want to be a physician providing individual level patient care, where do I go from there? And so I, I ended up getting a master's in public health and global health policy and then um, worked for a number of years on sort of the early team building PCORI out of the um, new legislation that founded that new uh, funding entity around comparative effectiveness research and then moved from there into establishing pub pr public-private partnerships with the U.S. government. So I 
sort of circled to another DC school, got an MBA from Georgetown and uh, helped to set up a public-private partnership with the FDA in regulatory science and then moved over here to launch this new public-private partnership with BARDA and Johnson & Johnson. Well, and even go back, Rachel, I, I always yeah. found it interesting. So my, my dad was a, was an ER doctor and okay. um, I remember being directly driven away from the, the even that that career path for me at least was between the uh the overnight you know uh <laughs> night shifts work and the even visiting him in the the er and i would i would be like dad you don't you're not reacting like we hear all this you know screaming and, and discomfort and he's like what and he's like he, he tunes it out you know um so i i was i i made that decision to not uh pursue but i'm if you walk back to you and i'm just curious like what what kind of doctors were your parents yeah. what uh what led you, like, what, when, when was that decision that you actually veered off from and, and said, hey, I want to be more on adventure and startups? Yeah. So my dad was a gastroenterologist, um, and his whole side of the family was in different kinds of medicine. So uh, psychiatry, pediatrics, ER, uh, radiology, there's a whole mix of them. <laughs> um, I actually, so I, it's funny you say that about your dad, Ben. I feel like it kind of goes one of two ways. Like I thought it was so fun to visit my dad at the hospital (laughs) and (laughs) see, you know, the different medical things. I used to like, you know, I don't talk about this a lot, but I remember getting like stuffed animals of like stomachs and things and like working on like building like Rube Goldberg's of like the digestive system and thinking that stuff was so cool. (laughs) Child of a gastroenterologist, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I still don't know where he was getting those stuffed animals of stomachs, I should ask. Um, but so I really loved it. Um, and then I sort of got a little bit more into politics and public policy. And that's what drove me into the international relations side of things. Partly, I I grew up um, sort of with strong connections to a lot of refugee families and understanding its strong interest in sort of global global health and global equity, which is where I moved sort of into the international relations side of things. I actually added pre-med and did it as my senior year of college. And so I almost went back to an interest in becoming a doctor. Um, But then what what ended up pivoting for me was um, the year after college, I I had an opportunity to shadow in a local hospital. And even though I'd, I'd spent a lot of time you know, exposed to my dad's life as a doctor and his family's life as doctors. It was different sort of going into a hospital even one day a week and experiencing sort of the day-to-day grind. And for me, it just, the individual patient level care, I wanted to do things at a sort of broader population level and see how more of the, the, technologies could impact patients or policies or processes. I The first time I actually got exposed to thinking about incubators, though, and more of the innovation, incubation, venture side of things was when I was in business school and we were um, overseas actually doing sort of an immersion experience. And we visited an incubator, a sports innovation incubator in Madrid. Hmm. And that for me was the moment where I was like, sort of let loose. I mean, it's not biotech, it's not life science. So you have a little bit more freedom to sort of play with all the VR toys and uh, new new treadmills, new helmets, things like that. Um, But I remember just thinking what what an incredible thing to be 
at the cutting edge of things that could help people and what is the the future going to look like and that's really where I came back and thought okay I need to I need to figure out what's going on in this space in the life sciences and particularly then in sort of the the global health and emerging infectious disease side of things where I have a strong interest well, and it sounds like, yeah, you you caught the, the startup bug. I think when, once you catch it, it's tough to, when you see the, <laughs> the fun, the joy, the pain, the, the, you know, the energy and the excitement of, of, of the venture world, it's tough to go back, um, to anything else. Um, and, and yeah, one thing I want to get your thoughts on too is, so, um, I get the question a lot. So I, I am, uh, you know, a bit MBA, you know, non-technical, I was a history major in college, Yeah. but yet, you know, fed tech, we, we get to interface with cutting edge science like every day. Um, but for you also not, and, and as do you, I mean, not, and, but you're not a, you're not a researcher. You're not coming from, uh, it sounds like, I think you're, you have a strong appreciation for, uh, medical technology, but, but not actually practicing it. Um, how do you approach those conversations? How do you approach dealing with even the big brains that you are going to inevitably interact with, with whether it's J and J or, or the ventures? Um, just as a non-technical person, yeah. I, I get that question constantly and I'm just curious, well, yeah, your thoughts on it's that. A, it's a great question. And I didn't know you were a history major in college. Very interesting. Um, I think it's really important to know your own sort of limitations and where to rely sort of on the expertise and partnership with others. I love helping build connections between people and helping spur innovation by thinking through things strategically and asking questions and helping connect people to other people. I'm never going to pretend to be the scientist in the room. <laughs> um, and so I think understanding what questions to ask, and I've been working sort of in this field long enough to be no enough to be dangerous and ask really good questions. But then it's about bringing in my colleagues or, or uh, external experts who are true scientific experts in this field from a technical standpoint and can help from that side of things. And so I think it's about bringing the right people and the right perspectives to the table, because ultimately at the end of the day, bringing a next technology or, or vaccine or therapeutic to patients, it doesn't just hinge on really phenomenal science. The scientific problems, you know, you work through, but it's also about building and establishing a company and a strategic plan and the right team and how do you navigate those non-scientific hurdles just as much as the scientific ones yeah sure you know it's a great it's a great point yeah there's a whole business model piece of it that often gets underappreciated um and I, I always find like so the the best advice i ever got around this topic was actually in college we had a it was an investigative journalist came and talked to us and he had done kind of exposés on very different fields, you know, technical, non-technical. Um, and he brought up kind of this, this piece of advice that has stuck with me is that as, as long as you're willing to do the, the work and learning, um, and then have the right people to ask questions of, there's almost a, not a field out there that you can't become articulate enough to, to be part of the, you know, the ecosystem. You may not actually be the one that's doing the science, but you could still be understanding the objectives, helpful, able to be part of that conversation. Um, and that's, that's stuck with even the way that we view our entrepreneurs in fed tech, where if we pair up, you know, new, new entrepreneurs with a, a, a technology that's maybe from a, a research lab, and there's always going to be that learning process, um, as they look to commercialize, I say, first thing you got to do, sit down and you sit your butt, you know, in a chair, Google, um, when you get to a word, you don't understand in a scientific paper, Google that word, 
when you get to another word, you don't understand Google. And like, yeah. before you know it, you're piecing together, you know, an ecosystem and an understanding that allows you to be effective. Uh, but it's, it, it doesn't happen without a lot of hustle. It's kind of my, my big point. Absolutely. And I think you've also, you know, I remember every new job I've had, right? Every time you transition into anything, there's going to be new terminology and let alone in the DC area where we're going to throw new acronyms at you. Right. And I, you know, so many meetings, just taking notes, writing down terms and then Googling them. And if you can't find it in Google, she probably can, right? Going to a colleague or asking someone for their help. I had a a new colleague a couple months ago walk into my room after a meeting and she had sort of a list on her piece of paper of every acronym and term that we had thrown out in the meeting. And she <laughs> said, I don't know what any of these things mean. Can you help? And I was like, absolutely. You have to start with understanding the landscape and not being afraid to, to Google things, to ask questions. Because what I've found is, you know, people are very eager to help and take that call. I onboarded into Johnson & Johnson right before COVID. And so um, to, they, to a certain degree, there was very little virtual onboarding at that point, at that point in time. And it, you know, a lot of what I had to do to meet people within my own organization and in this broader community was I would go to meetings and I would sort of set a goal to myself of, okay, find one person to connect with after the meeting, find one comment that someone says that you can follow up with them after to start building your network. And people huh. were always willing to take a meeting or respond to a follow-up email um, without even knowing me, but showing some interest in what other people are working on and some common point of, of interest. Well, it's really good. And it's good advice. You know, a lot of the folks that will listen to this are first-time entrepreneurs. They may be, you know, in companies or organizations that are early on in their career. And, and that's just such a good piece of advice, uh, Rachel. Yeah, because even... Takes a little bit of bravery, right? You know, if you if you want to go and ask somebody for their time, especially somebody that's more senior. Yeah. If you're an entrepreneur, it might be a, even a customer, you know, partner. It could be anyone. There's always that risk, right? If there's that little anxiety we always get when we put ourselves out there. Um, oh, I, oh, I might not be able to, you know, I might I might look foolish in this conversation. I might not be able to, to achieve whatever, it, you know. But if you can get past that, the results are almost always, you know, immensely positive on it, at least on a net basis. I found. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it is nerve wracking and it is scary. And you also, it, there's a you know, almost high risk, high reward, right? But it's, it's also to a certain degree, not that high risk. If someone doesn't respond to your email or, or take the meeting, it's also okay. And it's probably not personal. That's absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, shifting gears a little bit. So one, one of the things that I think about a little bit, and I, I really want to just defer to your, your work and your expertise here. Um, I, I have two young kids. I got a six and a three and I desperately want them to not have to go through another pandemic type of experience, um, in their lifetime <laughs> or, or, and then ideally not, you know, or my, uh, future grandkids also, what, what do you think, um, are we doing or should we be doing that will offer hope that like, we don't have to do this whole COVID thing again? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I share your hope. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think there have been some really great, there have been some really tremendous advancements in the last couple of years looking at how quickly, um, you know, things came to market and, and new initiatives have been set up, whether it's, you know, the pandemic fund or prep or now, but H is coming on board. There's so much 
so many new different initiatives coming on board with a focus on healthcare and innovation and and new potential solutions for tomorrow. I think there are some themes that um, you know are definitely of interest to us through Blue Knight that play a role here when we think about in developing you know, therapeutics at our broad spectrum. Therapeutics and vaccines that look at addressing viral families versus individual strains. How do we break sort of durability on annual vaccinations or seasonal vaccinations, increasing sort of the sensitivity to variation, for example. And I think those are some of the key things that will really make a difference. And then when we think globally about access and equitability, I think thinking about, you know, how do we improve um, reliance on cold chain, right? Are we thinking about new and novel ways to build the cold chain? Or are we even thinking about ways to break the reliance on cold chain entirely and looking at shelf stable options? So I think those are some of the things that could play a really big role in the future when we think about preparing for those unknown threats of tomorrow, but being prepared from even, you know, a viral family standpoint and rapid deployment and supporting enabling technologies and accelerating manufacturing that are maybe not those end specific products, but are really core technologies and helping us get there when there is a new and emerging threat. Yeah. And maybe actually Rachel, just, just, um, especially for folks that aren't in this space, like, could you unpack the, even the, the idea of the cold chain, the idea yeah. of the role of supply chain and logistics in, in supporting sure. pandemic um, um, response? I mean, yeah, maybe unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I think that one in particular, you know, thinking about, yes, we can develop new vaccines and new therapeutics, but they still have to get to patients. And you have to get to patients all over the world. And threats may emerge from anywhere, but we also live in a world where things are transmitted fairly rapidly across borders, right? Borders are, are invisible lines. <laughs> Threats transmit pretty rapidly through them, particularly with transportation and global, global integration where it is today. Um, so when it comes to things like the cold chain, vaccines and therapeutics still have to be stored and delivered. And that's a big constraint on where you can get to really rural or uh, really rare, really very rural or um, under-resourced areas around the world. And so thinking about how do you get vaccines that have to be supported on really cold chain storage, kept at a very cold temperature until they get to patients. How do you do that when it's a really rural area or it's a very low-resourced setting? Um, so increasing the ability of vaccines and therapeutics to not rely on being um, kept at really cold temperatures, for example, is sort of the the cold chain. How do we not have to keep things cold? And then on the manufacturing side, you know, we're we're pretty reliant right now on on manufacturing plants and where they're developed and built as physical infrastructure. So how can we make vaccines or therapeutics more rapidly and at a lower cost? So how do we make cell lines, for example, more efficient, even you know, at that sort of very early level in the manufacturing line. So some of the technologies, for example, that that we support through Blue Knight, even on just the cold chain side, look at, um, you know, we have a company developing a new cold chain technology that keeps water actually frozen at a higher temperature for twice as long 
and then is completely environmentally safe. So it just turns into fertilizer once it gets to its destination. Um, so that's one wow. example of how do we how do we change things up from the status quo of today? How, how does that um, do you, how does that work? So so it actually water will be frozen not at thirty two degrees but higher. Yeah, yeah. They have a technology as part of their IP that allows them using all natural ingredients to keep the water frozen at a higher temperature than than freezing. Wow. Yeah. So there's some really wow, okay. interesting things coming from from companies and innovators all over the world. And I think some of this is harnessing and supporting those technologies to get things to patients faster. Well, I'm glad. And I think what what is impressive about your efforts is it, it does appear like it's a true global um, outreach initiative. And, and, and just picture, I mean, there might be, yeah, the thing that is critical from a technology standpoint that prevents, yeah, the pandemic of the future from taking hold maybe is is literally sitting in somebody's mind right now in, in a part of yeah. the world that you wouldn't even associate with entrepreneurship and, and, and technology and maybe outside of whatever, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts, or um, <laughs> might be on the other side of the world, but, and, and we got to find a way to identify and support that, that future entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Rachel, I guess we, we usually finish just with, um, because uh, we do have a big community of entrepreneurs that listen to this, what, what advice, if you just had sort of your tweet size advice on someone that has just started a company, someone that's growing a technology company in the, in, you know, the medical or the biotech space, what would you tell them if you just uh, were having a, a beer with them and, and kind of given that, that, you know, encouragement? Yeah, actually, I heard a piece of advice from one of the Blue Knight companies a couple of weeks ago that really resonated with me and I think aligns to how I've sort of set my career trajectory as well. And she just this this um, entrepreneur just sort of said, you have to, as an early stage company, you just have to say yes to opportunities because you don't know what will come from them. And I think that's really point on and you know you once you say yes to the opportunities i think you know then you have to go through the evaluation and the prioritization and thinking about if it's a good fit for you but you you never know what introduction or conversation may lead to something in the future and it may not be about today but building relationships that may come back to support your company in six months or a year or even multiple years in the future so i would encourage people to say yes and keep an open mind about opportunities and introductions that may come their way. I love that. Yeah, I love that. That's um, as a young entrepreneur, when you're starting out, it is not the time to uh, overmanage your calendar, get involved in stuff, say yes, do everything. You can always pare down later when you kind of identify the, the highest value activities. But um, great advice. Uh, Rachel Rath, thank you for being a part of this. Um, we're excited about the work you're doing. And yeah, grateful to be a partner and uh, looking forward to seeing what's happening in the future. Thanks so much, Ben, for having me. Great to talk with you today. Take care. Yeah, thank you.